You are listening to Excess Advantage, a podcast dedicated to the Genesis RPG by Fantasy Flight Games. The Excess Advantage podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at excess-advantage.com. And now your host, Christopher. Hello, and welcome to Excess Advantage Episode 9, Combat Part 3, the final part of the combat chapter, which is pretty much dealing with all of the additional combat modifiers, all of the things that are not going to come up in every game, but are uh, good to have on hand just in case. Page 107, if you folks following along at home, starts with additional combat modifiers. And like I mentioned, these are the things that are not likely to come up in every combat, but when they do, it's important to know how they work. Um, The first thing that they talk about is making ranged attacks at engaged targets. If you have an ally who is engaged with uh, an enemy and you decide to shoot at that enemy, know that there are specific rules that cover that. Really, the only thing that happens is you upgrade the um, difficulty of your combat check, and if you succeed and generate at least one despair, that despair can be spent to make the attacker hit somebody else instead of your chosen target. So there is a slight chance of friendly fire. And if that enemy they're engaged with has the adversary talent, that will upgrade even more. So just be wary of shooting at engagements of melee because you might hit a different target. And then on the uh, flip side of that is you making ranged attacks while you are engaged with somebody else. And the basic rule is, if you make a ranged combat check, then who you're engaged with gets a boost die on their next brawl or melee check against you. So, you know, the whole bringing a knife to a gunfight, or bringing a gun to a knife fight works great, unless that person with the knife is right up in your face, then it's easier for them to stab you with it. The next section talks about ranged modifiers when making that ranged attack in melee, which we discussed back in part one during um, talking about the difficulty of the check, so I'm not going to rehash it here. But then note that there are rules for attacking prone targets and making attacks while prone. If you're down on your belly, it's easier for someone to to stab you with a sword, but harder for them to shoot you. But at the same time, lying down makes it more difficult for you to make melee attacks. So boost and setback dice are added accordingly. And then, of course... Everybody's favorite is two-weapon combat rule, what I like to call the Sabine Wren maneuver, because I'm a very big fan of Star Wars Rebels, and she pretty much goes into every fight with uh, dual pistols blazing. And I know there are a lot of other examples, like in Stargate, Teal'c is very um, fond of dual-wielding P90s, which is kind of fun. Two-weapon combat basically is when you are wielding a one-handed weapon in each hand, Depending on your setting, that might be um, ranged light, melee light, or melee light and ranged, or ranged light and melee, depending on the setting, but they have to be uh, one one one-handed weapon in each hand. And then it's easiest if they're the same weapons. So trying to stab someone with two swords or trying to shoot someone with two pistols. Then you just make your check as normal, but then you increase the difficulty by one. So if you're making a ranged attack at short range with two pistols, then it would be a hard check with three purple difficulty dice instead of the normal two. The wonkiness is when you have two weapons that use different skills. 
So you're using a pistol and a um, vibrosword if you're doing 40K. So you have a bolt pistol in one hand, a vibrosword, or not vibrosword, chainsword. Vibrosword is Star Wars, I apologize. I'm getting my fandoms mixed up. If you have a bolt pistol in one hand and a chainsword in the other, then you look at your range light skill and your uh, melee skill, and then you are using those two to perform a combined skill check. You take the lower characteristic and the lower skill. So going with the um, example of a pistol, with which is range light, and a sword, which is melee. So range light uses agility, and melee uses brawn. Whichever one it has a lower number, say you have an agility of 3 and a brawn of 2, then you would use the brawn of 2 when determining your dice for the skill check. And then say you have 4 ranks in melee, but only 3 in range light, then you would take the lower number of ranks in that skill of 3. So the skill you're using is ranged light, but the characteristic is brawn. So then you would end up having one green ability die and two yellow proficiency dice. And again, like I said before, you take whatever the normal difficulty would be and you increase it by one. So if you're doing it in a melee, normally it's average, which is two difficulty dice. Then you would increase it to hard, which is three. If you're dual wielding at long range, which is normally hard, three difficulty dice, you would then increase it to uh, formidable, which is, or you would increase it to daunting, which is four difficulty dice. And then you make your combat check. If you succeed, you hit with your primary weapon. And if you um, spend two advantage or one triumph, you can make a hit with your secondary weapon. And then that hit deals base damage plus one per, per uncancelled success. So you're only making one attack roll, and the uncancelled successes are applied to both hits if both weapons hit. One thing to keep in mind is that you're only making the attack roll with one weapon. You're not actually making it with both weapons. So passive uh, properties, things that include um, accurate uh, superior, which grants an automatic advantage, inferior, which grants an automatic threat, any of those things that would normally affect your attack roll are only counted if they're on your primary weapon. So if you have an accurate weapon and an inaccurate weapon, make the inaccurate weapon your secondary, and then that setback die will not apply to your attack roll because you're not actually making an attack roll with it. You're making an attack roll with the other uh, weapon. For things like that, it doesn't matter because uh, the player gets to choose which weapon um, because when you are trying to figure out what the difficulty would be, you compare the difficulty of the two combat checks and select the one with the higher difficulty. Again, it's all on page 108. Feel free to uh, peruse and read at your convenience. Um, Interesting thing that we've come up to next is unarmed combat. It is perhaps the only quote-unquote weapon that doesn't have its own line on any of the weapon tables anywhere in the book, which is interesting because unarmed combat is going to be fairly likely at least one point in any campaign because you're going to be without weapons. Or maybe you have a monk-type character, a brawler, who just likes punching people with their fists instead of using weapons. But your unarmed attack uh, uses the brawl skill. It does damage equal to your brawn, and it has a critical rating of 5 with the knockdown quality. And another interesting thing about unarmed combat is you have the option of adding the stun damage quality to it. So you can either deal wound damage or strain damage uh, of your choice. 
Unlike other weapons, brawl weapons actually augment your basic attack as opposed to supplementing them. So if you pick up a sword, it has a defensive property, it has its own crit rate and all of that, but you don't get the knockdown quality of your unarmed attack. But if you, say, put on a pair of brass knuckles or stun gauntlets or any other brawn or any other brawl weapon, it adds to and augments your base unarmed attack. So anytime you punch somebody, regardless of what type of weapon you have when punching them, is going to have that base damage of your brawn with a crit of 5 and the knockdown quality. Granted, most weapons are probably going to increase your uh, crit rating, change it from 5 to, I don't know, 3 two if it's a fibro knucklers or something but even though the brawl weapon does not list knockdown it still has the knockdown quality because the brawl weapons augment as opposed to replace your normal unarmed attacks and then speaking of weapons with a very high crit rating um, improvised weapons are also found on page 109 they have three different examples of improvised weapons small medium and large with a damage of brawn plus one plus two plus three um, crit of five and then different examples Uh, like the small weapon example is a bottle or fist-sized rock, medium, two-handed rock or chair, and large is a shovel, large tree branch, table, or crate, which kind of sounds like, you know, a large tree branch could be a club or a quarterstaff that you pick up and start bashing people with. And the only downside of improvised weapons is that they automatically have the inferior weapon quality, which means that all of your attack rolls generate one automatic threat on the check. So obviously improvised weapons are not meant to be your main weapon in an encounter, but as something you pick up to just use to augment your unarmed damage, not necessarily a bad idea. And then the last thing on page 109 is um, size difference, talking about silhouettes. Not normally something that comes into play a lot, but if you play in games that utilize the vehicle rules, then silhouettes are going to be a bigger part of the game. But even in fantasy... You know, an ogre is going to be bigger than a human, which is going to be bigger than a goblin, right? So there's no real mechanical difference um, when dealing with different silhouettes unless the variance is two or greater. So a silhouette zero goblin attacking a silhouette two ogre is going to have an easier time hitting the ogre, and the ogre is going to have a harder time hitting the goblin. If your target is two or more silhouettes larger than you, then you um, decrease the difficulty by one. So the aforementioned goblin making a melee attack against an ogre makes it at an easy difficulty with one difficulty die as opposed to the normal average, which is two difficulty dice. But if you're attacking a target which is two or more silhouette sizes smaller than you, then you increase the difficulty of the check by one. So when the ogre tries to smash the goblin with his giant club, normally it's an average check. It becomes a hard check with three difficulty dice because the size um, plays into account. And then they have a nice little table of examples from silhouette zero all the way up to eight. Next section we come to is environmental effects, which is all of the things like concealment, uh, cover, difficult terrain, corrosive atmospheres, etc. Concealment is pretty simple. You have three levels of concealment, and they add setback dice to checks targeting someone in concealment uh, based on the type of concealment. For example, making a ranged combat check against someone in waist-high grass adds one setback die. In a dense fog, it's two, or... um, 
the darkness of night is three. So having concealment makes it a little bit more difficult for them to hit you because you're adding setback dice to it. Um, on the plus side, that same number of dice, one, two, or three, is added as boost dice to your stealth checks that you make when you have concealment. So when you're being hidden by something, it's easier to sneak around. And of course, if the GM and player agree that those penalties and bonuses can apply to other checks that might benefit. But basic rule of thumb is setback dice are added to range combat checks, vigilance checks, and perception checks, and boost dice are added to stealth checks. And then cover was briefly mentioned in part one when we were discussing um, maneuvers, which the uh, interact with the environment maneuver allows you to hop in cover, and cover just gives you a range defense one. Like I mentioned last time, it gives you range defense one. It does not increase your range defense by one. So if you have range defense of one or higher from armor or um, the elf species in the fantasy chapter of the book has a defense of one innately, then hopping into cover doesn't really do anything for you. And it also says that it adds uh, setback dice to certain skill checks such as perception because you are ducked behind cover makes it harder for you to see things but again that can change because if it's say clear cover you know transparent steel someone shooting at you with uh, and you're behind bulletproof glass things like that probably not going to add any uh, setback dice up to the situation and it also mentioned that you can increase the defense and the setback dice suffered if it is a specifically tough piece of cover like a trench or a bunker or something of that nature. And then next up is my personal favorite, which is difficult and impassable terrain. And difficult terrain is pretty much anything that is difficult to move through, but not so difficult that it requires a skill check. So all it does is it requires twice as many maneuvers to get from one uh, range increment to another. So instead of taking one maneuver to get from short to medium, it would take two because you have to take your time and uh, move around the difficult terrain, you know, whether it's slippery ice or very thick underbrush or or perhaps it's just so freaking dark that you're afraid you're going to run into something. Anything that would cause you to take your time when moving from point A to point B would be considered difficult terrain. And there actually is a tier 2 talent called Swift, which allows you to ignore difficult terrain. So that's always handy. Um, impassable terrain is anything that is simply impossible to move through via maneuvers. Sheer cliffs, uh, walls higher than the character can jump, deep pits, etc. So just because it's called impassable terrain doesn't mean that it is impossible to um, get past it. It just means that you need to take a skill check in order to spend those maneuvers to get around it. So yes, there is this very large cliff face. Well, you can't just spend maneuvers. You have to make an athletics check to climb up. So you make your athletics check. If you succeed, then you can spend maneuvers to climb. And of course, if it's a very sheer cliff, it might be impassable and difficult. But if you have, say, um, climbing gear that is specifically designed to allow you to climb cliffs better, well, then it's not going to be difficult, but it will still be impassable. You still have to make that skill check. The most common checks are going to be athletics for climbing, running, jumping, swimming, that kind of thing. But coordination could also come into play if it's walking on a tightrope or balancing um, on a precarious ledge, or even if you are trying to do some parkour, you know, that might take into account coordination instead of athletics. You know, if you think one should apply and the, and the GM says something else, talk about it, find out what makes the most sense and, and go on. But the number one thing I just want to 
make sure people are aware of is that impassable terrain just means impossible without a skill check because you can definitely um, bypass those obstacles. It just takes a lot longer. And another thing to note is that if you succeed on your skill check and, and you have two or more advantages, two advantages can be spent to gain a free maneuver on your turn without spending two strain. So you get that free maneuver and then you have your normal maneuver and then you made your roll and succeeded. So you've got, so if you get two advantages on that athletics or coordination check, then you have two maneuvers with which to bypass the obstacle. Uh, next up is gravity. If the gravity is higher than you're used to, it adds up to three setback dice to brawn based skill checks and coordination checks. And weaker than normal gravity can add up to three uh, boost dice on any brawn based check and coordination check. Next up, they talk about swimming, which is pretty much treated as difficult terrain. Make it impassable terrain if it's a, you know it's a very stormy or a very high current or something like that. Talks about vacuum exposure, which if you're caught outside of a vacuum sealed suit in space, you're gonna die quick. Fire, acid, and corrosive atmospheres are just when you, something is just causing you damage. It's, or I shouldn't say damage because soak does not apply to these things, but something that is constantly causing problems for you. Corrosive atmospheres are rated from 1 to 10, and whatever that rating is is how many wounds that you suffer every round. And it's not damage, so your soak does not apply. You know, you're breathing in poison, doesn't matter how heavy your armor is unless it's, it's sealed, then of course you are not in a corrosive environment but your um, your spacesuit is. And one uh, small aside I'd like to mention is that these rules are great for vampires who take damage from the sun. If they get exposed to sun, they catch fire. That's probably at least six wounds a turn going by these rules. And then next up, we talk about suffocating, which is you can hold your breath for a number of rounds equal to your brawn. After that, you start suffering three strain each round. Um, once you start breathing again, you can start recovering that strain. And then they have the falling damage rules, which is kind of, I think it's harsh with the numbers that they have. I'm not entirely sure because I haven't used it against uh, my players yet because the numbers are pretty daggum high. A short range fall inflicts 10 damage and you suffer 10 strain. So your soak applies to the damage, but you still take 10 strain from the fall. Of course, you can make an athletics or coordination check. Each success reduces the damage suffered by one, while each advantage reduces strain suffered by one. And if you spend a try um, you can reduce the overall distance by one range band. So a medium fall, which would deal 30 damage and inflict 20 strain, becomes a short range fall as you land properly or find someplace soft to land in, or you grab awnings, laundry lines, whatever, something to uh, slow your fall. But still, 10 damage on a short range fall and suffering 10 strain? <sighs> That's that's rough. A really bad roll might actually um, knock you out from just that short-range fall. So again, I've not used them, so this is just armchair game design, if you will. Take it or leave it. You can go ahead and read up on page 112. It depends on what you like. Uh, the next section here talks about wounds, strain, and state of health, which is kind of important during a combat encounter. Basically mentions that as long as your current wounds do not exceed your wound threshold, you're fine. But once you um, exceed that wound threshold, you are immediately suffer one critical injury and you are knocked out and incapacitated until you bring those wounds below your threshold. And then you can continue accumulating wounds until um, you get up to twice your wound threshold. So the more damage you take while incapacitated, the longer it's going to take to get you back to um, fighting form, as it were. 
When NPCs suffer wounds greater than their threshold, they're pretty much defeated unless they're a nemesis. Minions' rivals are pretty much taken out. When a minion group suffers a critical injury, they take one minion's worth of wounds plus one, to, which is enough wounds to um, remove one minion from the group. So if the minion group has, say, a wound threshold of three each, a critical injury will deal four wound damage. Or will, they will suffer four wounds that will take out one minion regardless of their soak. Um, very similar to strain and strain threshold. You start at zero. Once you get over your threshold, then you are again incapacitated. But unlike when taking wounds, you do not um, suffer a critical injury. Next page, we have page 115 is a large table that takes up the entire page of critical injuries. Basically, how it works is you roll a D100, which is either a golf ball size die, or you can roll two 10-sided dice. Most gaming sets have them in sets. One is numbered 0 through 9. The other one is 0, 0, 1, 0, 2, 0, all the way up to um, 9, 0. So it goes from double zero up to 90. And then you read it from the 10s digits to the 1s digit. If you don't actually have have this quote-unquote special d10s you just roll two d10s read them from left to right if you roll a one and a seven congratulations that's 17 pretty easy but you roll a d100 and you consult the chart they have results from one all the way down to 151 plus and as i've mentioned several times on the podcast Every existing critical injury you have increases your roll by 10. If you trigger multiple critical injuries on one attack, then you only make one roll, but each additional uh, critical injury that is triggered gives you 10 on that roll. So if you have one existing and you trigger two critical injuries, then you're rolling at plus 20. You're making the roll because of the first critical injury you triggered, adding plus 10 for the second critical injury triggered, and then uh, plus 10 for the existing injury. And then you just consult the chart or I mean, you consult the table, figure out what it is, apply the effect, and move on. When you take a critical injury, just because the effect only lasts for a turn or for a minor instant doesn't mean you're not still affected by it. So even if you get hit with a minor nick, you just suffer one strain, the effect is fleeting, but the next critical injury you take is going to still have that plus 10 because you are suffering from that result. Next topic is talking about other ongoing status effects, just the three quote-unquote status conditions that the game has. Staggered just means that you cannot take any action, which includes downgrading your action to a maneuver. You can still take maneuvers, you can still suffer two strain to perform a second maneuver, but you cannot perform an action. Most effects last for set duration. Usually it's the end of your next turn, but some weapon qualities will have you staggered for two turns, or maybe even three. Hopefully not more than two, but you never know. Really nasty weapons do really nasty things. Immobilized is kind of the inverse of staggered, which means you cannot perform maneuvers, including maneuvers purchased via strain, spending advantage, or downgrading your action to a maneuver. So you cannot perform any maneuvers. You cannot move, you cannot aim, you cannot pull out a weapon, but you can still take an action. So even though you cannot pull out a weapon, if you have one, you can still make an attack. So you are just prevented from moving and performing maneuvers, but you can still perform actions. And then the catch-all status effect of disoriented, which takes into effect pretty much anything else that could happen. As long as you're disoriented, you add one setback die to all checks you make. And any check you make, regardless of anything, you just take one setback die. 
If you take multiple effects that cause you to be disoriented for varying lengths of time, you just add it all together. So say you get hit with the disorient two. So for the next two rounds, you have a setback die to your skill check. And then before your next round, you get hit with the disorient three. Well, congratulations. The next five rounds are now adding a setback die to your checks. Um, and the last and final status effect is death. Your character is dead. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Unless you have magic or super science to bring people back from the dead, it's time to make a new character. But like I've mentioned so many times in the past, is that the dead condition is extremely difficult to get. Like I said, you need to get a 151 or higher on a critical injury. A 141 through 150 means you die at the end of next round unless the critical injury is healed, but you're still not dead until you get that. 151 or higher. Dead is difficult to get, but when you do achieve true death, it's probably sticking around forever and you have to make a new character. Sorry. And then the last section, I know we're going a little long in this recording and I apologize, but I'm trying to finish up this chapter so we can move on to uh, the next topic that we have um, and get back to putting out some actual play episodes as well. Last section is recovery and healing. I'm talking about healing wounds and healing strain. The most common way of healing wounds are painkillers. If you've played Star Wars, you're familiar with stim packs. In fantasy games, you could call them uh, healing potions. If you're playing Mass Effect, Medigel. Pretty much anything that helps you miraculously recover wounds are uh, painkillers. They work just like stim packs in Star Wars. The first one you use recovers five wounds. The second one recovers four, then three, then two, then one. So once you use five painkillers, you've recovered 15 total wounds. And then you cannot use any more painkillers until you get a good night's rest. And then that resets the counter. Speaking of getting a good night's rest, for each full night of rest you get, you recover one wound. Regardless of how many wounds you have, regardless of anything else, if you get a good night's rest, very important to note that it's a good night's rest. So if um, you're not allowed to sleep well, or if you have disturbing dreams and you're woken every few hours, that's not a good night's rest, so you won't recover the wound. But natural recovery is one wound per good night's rest. And then part of that is if you have a critical injury, you can make a resilience check to recover from each critical injury. If you fail that resilience check to recover from a critical injury, you have to wait one week before you can do so again. The first night you rest after receiving any critical injury allows you to recover from, attempt to recover from all of them. Those that you do not recover from, you have to wait for another week before you can do it again. Unless, of course, you are under the medical supervision of somebody. Uh, you can perform a medicine check to help anybody heal wounds, and there's a difficulty chart on page 116. You can receive medical attention once every encounter, either during the encounter if your wounds are getting pretty high, or after the encounter is over, patching things up, but regardless, once per encounter, every success heals uh, one wound, every advantage heals one strain. And if you are providing medical care for um, critical injuries, then you may make a medicine check in lieu of a resilience check. Um, and again, you may attempt one medicine check per week of critical injury. If they fail the resilience check, then have someone perform a medicine check. They're not mutually exclusive. You can try one, then try the other. One thing to note is that if you do not have a proper medical kit of some kind, then all of the difficulties when using the medicine skill are increased by one. 
recovering from strain is pretty darn easy. The most common way is spending advantage on your skill checks to recover strain on a one-for-one basis. But at the end of every encounter, you can also make either a simple discipline or cool check, your choice, with every success allowing you to recover one strain. And normally, like I just said, advantages are used to recover um, strain on skill checks. But since this discipliner cool check is specifically to recover strain, you cannot spend advantage also because that would be converting advantage to success on a one-for-one basis, which pretty much doesn't exist in the rule set currently. But there's a common house rule that every two advantage that you spend allows you to recover an additional strain because otherwise there's really nothing at all to do with your advantage. And that makes a very high advantage roll fall flat because you can't do anything with it. But that's something that um, you need to discuss with your GM because it's definitely an optional house rule. It's not anywhere in the rule book. And the last uh, section here is specifically about recovering from critical injuries, which we've discussed pretty much everything in these two paragraphs before. They vary in severity, you require a medicine or resilience check, and if you are suffering from a critical injury, that penalty applies even if the effect no longer is there. So just because you took one strain doesn't mean you're not adding plus 10 to the next critical injury roll that someone makes against you. And that covers the last of the combat chapter. Holy cow, that took a lot longer to go through than I thought. But it is one of the more common um, rules that's going to be used in a game. So glad we got that out of the way. For everybody who showed up to listen, thank you very much. Um, I've got nothing else to say, so have a good one. And remember, regardless of success or failure of your role, always check for excess advantage. You've been listening to Excess Advantage. If you'd like to leave comments on today's show or subscribe to the community, please visit the website at excess-advantage.com. You can find the host on Twitter at C double underscore Beck. If you like what you hear and want to spread the word, please leave a review or rating on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you subscribe. It'll help others find us. If you want to join the growing Discord community, become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash excess advantage. Thanks for listening and catch you next week.